Welcome back to another episode of Tonic Discussions. Today we are discussing John Carter's latest article on postcards for Varsum about uh, the left and right hemispheres of the brain. So a lot of people hear that and they're familiar with it. They've heard that before. They've heard, you know, oh, you're left-handed. You must be really creative because that's associated with like the right hemisphere of your brain, you know, and then, oh, you're right-handed. Oh, you're, yeah, you're like, yeah, that's, that's normal, like very logical, you know, um, you know, cause that's associated with the left hemisphere. Cause you, you know, you got that decussation uh, where, where the nerve neurons cross over. Uh, or the axons crossover. So um, that's not, you know, that that's a part of it. But what I think all of us here perhaps find most interesting about it is the work that Ian McGilchrist has done really diving in to what these hemispheres do, their relationship, and also how the left hemisphere is supposed to be subordinate to the right hemisphere and the master and his emissary where that holistic thinking of the right hemisphere is supposed to kind of see the big picture and then the left hemisphere can generate models so that you can actually interact with reality in a meaningful way and then go kind of back and forth and always have that right hemisphere predominant so that you don't end up going too far down the path of a bad model you know, you'll get snapped out of it because that right hemisphere can kind of see it. But we're going to go into the weeds on this and then also how it relates to political differences uh, between, you know, typical right and left stuff. Like, how's that defined and how does it relate? Because John's article has some good visuals to it as well that I, I think make a very strong case that that is a good way to chop it up. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to John to kind of give us a background of his thinking on this article uh and we'll just continue the discussion yeah thanks a lot for that grant that was a that was an excellent summary of the the sort of the actual core difference according to the mcgill christian or mcgill christian i don't know uh hemispheric hypothesis um so yeah i mean basically your your right brain is for experiencing and understanding reality and then your left hemisphere is much more specialized towards instrumentalizing that and you know manipulating reality um and there's like a lot that could be said on that subject I and mean, Bill Christ himself has written uh you know two two books one of which is a two volume 1600 page you know tome uh kind of unpacking all of the uh the implications of that and looking at it from all the different facets and stuff it's it's, it's really a quite quite remarkable and it's explanatory power of how how human cognition works um so like i mean the article itself was more sort of like taking that as like something of an extended metaphor but maybe a little bit more than a metaphor i don't know for uh for the political divide because like you know when you look at um network graphs uh of the internet where you divide things into um conservative and liberal left versus right what have you uh and you look at the communities that kind of organically form whether in the blogosphere or on twitter or on facebook uh any platform whether you're talking about the united states or brazil or argentina uh any country that you look at 
um, you see these kind of two broad communities emerge that are really densely connected internally to each other and then only kind of loosely coupled uh, between each other, which is pretty similar to the network architecture of the human brain. Both of the hemispheres are tight, are, 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 are strongly connected to themselves and you just have this like sort of like little corpus callosum between them shuttling the most important information back and forth. Uh, and that kind of got me thinking like, well, you know, is this political divide really just a kind of emanation of that sort of uh, bilateral cognitive architecture that humans and every other uh, animal species has in its central nervous system? Um, and it would kind of make sense, actually, because, you know, some people have a tendency to be a little bit more left brain in their orientation and others uh, tend to be a little bit more balanced um, in meaning in practice, they, they, the right hemisphere is more in charge, uh, which is kind of the optimal state to be in. Um, so you would kind of expect that they would separate into those different communities. So then the question is like, okay, um, what are the actual sort of broad psychological traits characterizing those two communities? Like if you look at their discourse, their behavior, what are they like? Well, on the left hand, the, the, on the, the political left, you tend to find a lot of fascination with these intricate, abstract models of society. Um, you know, everything from you know Marxism to critical theory to you know, uh, as we were talking about before we started recording, climate change. Uh, they always have this these kinds of utopian visions of like you know, here's how the world should work, right? And you know. And the discourse tends to be sort of around elaborating those models and also driving towards, you know, how can we use these models to improve the world, which always means making the world more like our models. Um, so it's it's really a discourse, which ultimately, when you boil it down to it, is, is sort of focused around uh, acquiring and using power in order to alter things in the world. Um, and I... I, I, that, I don't think that's like necessarily a bad thing, right? Like in and of itself, it's like this, this actually, you know, it's part of life to, to change things in the world. Um, but then you look at the political right and its discourse, at least, you know, for the last 10 years uh, has been much more around like, you know, what is the nature of reality? What is, what is true about reality? Um, how do things actually work in the world? Like, forget about your fancy models. Like, what's real? What's human nature really like? You know, and this has always been kind of a, a core aspect of conservatism. Um, you look at the relationship of the two sides to time. Uh, on the right, you tend to have this sort of more traditionalist outlook where, like, history is seen as this kind of flow, this kind of organic unfolding. Um, and the political left tends to see it as more like a very sort of like progressive arc of history that bends in a certain direction. And, you know, each, each moment in time is also somewhat isolated from the ones that came before it. Like, it doesn't matter what the history was. We're just going to do what we're going to do now because that's, you know, it's the current year and that's how we do things now. It's like, it's, it's much more separated, sliced up way of looking at time. Uh, 
um, which again actually turns out to be very similar to how the left and the right hemispheres respectively actually do experience time. Um, so, you know, you look at a few different aspects of this, which I, do, I did in the article, and it sort of does look broadly like at least you know, maybe accidentally, but uh, the, the, the political left and the political right actually do seem to somewhat correspond to the traits that you would expect from left hemisphere dominance versus right, right, left hemisphere balance. Um, actually, even another thing is like, you know, the uh, how the left tends to be very manic in its uh, approach to things like, um, you know, we can do this and uh you know we're going to change the world and you know who cares about um the facts essentially which is you know the left hemisphere does tend to be much very unreasonably optimistic about things and to sort of ignore obvious obstacles whereas the right hemisphere tends to, like it, it's it's a characteristic mental illness is actually depression because it looks at like you know all of the aspects of reality many of which aren't necessarily um very nice or reassuring and it will you know sometimes kind of sink into despondency like oh we're screwed there's nothing we can do right and uh, that actually you know if you look at like the characteristic mood on the political right not just now but like almost any time through history like look at oswald spengler for example um it's this kind of like resigned depressive pessimism like there's nothing we can do to improve the world everything is doomed you know uh so since so, this is so since this is so broad i want to kind of zoom in on that because otherwise we might have a hard time of, of picking something to focus in on because there's sure. just so many different places that we can go the the idea of right hemisphere dominance in depression because that's something that really stuck out to me in the article because i wasn't aware of that before and um, it, it just resonates so strongly, but also it kind of makes me think how critical it is to have the right balance. So it's like you want the right hemisphere dominance because that's kind of what it's, you know, our brains are designed to be most efficient as, but you need that left hemisphere to actually interact with the world. You know, the right hemisphere is critical to see it, but to actually interact in a meaningful way, you can't interact with the world as it is cognitively, you have to build a model um, to make sense of it, to, to translate the world into meaningful information, just like, you know, uh, and not like, just, not just, not just that, but like, I mean, you know, you need to use your hands to actually do things in the world. Like having agency isn't just sitting there watching it and experiencing it's also operating on it, which to us, which necessarily involves reducing like sort of, blocking out of your mind all the sort of like you know wonderful like wow isn't everything amazing and 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 sort of focusing on something and just turning it into a tool right like removing its own agency and just operating on that thing as a thing like even if that thingness is not actually in the end the truth of what you of 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 the object or the process that you're operating on, um, it is a necessary illusion in order to be able to operate upon it. And if you don't do that, you, you lose agency and then you're just passive and you sink into depression, basically. 
And you have with a model, I mean, you have to have a model to interact with the world, like Grant said, but your model has to be useful because that can also lead to the depression if you, you know, cycle through a series of models to try to interact with the world and your models are inaccurate or obsolete or whatever. And, you know, and your interactions also, with the world backfire or don't go the way you thought. Anyway. Yeah. And then I also think um, sometimes like just uh, getting the big picture, like, or even like the, the truth, you know, can be like pretty depressing <laughs> so uh just to give you an example maybe that you can relate to um and some of the listeners uh were also writers you know sometimes when i when i write stuff you know i get really pumped up you know like i have an idea and i like like i really want to like do this you know and it's just it's a great feeling right it's it's something against depression basically uh, when you feel like that and it's also kind of instrumental right so you're doing something you're interacting with the world you're manipulating the world in a sense right um and you're also very specific and uh you you feel good about it but you know when the right brain hemisphere kicks in you know and i i think i wrote about that even at some point no it's like almost you realize you can't write anything that isn't wrong you know <laughs> it's just uh it, it can be done you know because in a sense there's always like more to add you know like other aspects that are important like caveats you know like yes in, in, in infinite infinite amount of caveats so and i have that sometimes literally that i think i can't do anything because it's all wrong you know and it's all bad you know even like with interacting with reality you know kind of realize it's basically you you can only screw up you know and and it's that sort of thing i guess that that is also part of the depressive state right that that realization that that's basically pointless you you have no power you know it's uh, it's just too complex and and you know that it's you know it's kind of like this nihilism that creeps in and i think that it's actually true in a sense right uh, so that's that's pretty depressing but um but you kind of need that balance because to interact at all in a sense you you have to step back from that and and just go for stuff you know and and i guess also that's may, might be one of the reasons why like doing practical stuff can be so therapeutic right uh, because uh, when you like do something really practical there, there's just much less of a question you know it's kind of like useful and you do it and uh, that's it you know you feel good about it and and that's kind of therapeutic and, and helps against depression also yeah but I, I was just gonna say that I, I can see that that sort of uh, depressive state of the right hemisphere i think i can see that in myself as well in my experience something that you know to address what daniel said about you know maybe the left hemisphere causing some depression too when your models don't work i know i think i think we can still use the same framework because how are you going to know that your model doesn't work you know that right hemisphere has got to be active to be able to kick in and see that kind of just like what luke was saying i think that people that are stuck left hemisphere hard they they're like no my model's right and the world is like every all the information that's coming in i'm not seeing any of that information that's proving my model to be ridiculous and they just go hard all the way in and yeah then, it can know, give you power people that yeah you know get in the way of, exactly uh, it, it can make you powerful you know I mean, if you're like a, a really fanatic uh with a certain idea these are like some of the like most powerful people that like just go at it you know like for for decades you know because they they have their model they fully believe in it you know and no right hemisphere is getting in the way and boom you know <laughs> there, i guess it's like a question of in incentives and costs because you know if you have 
you're you know on the ship like the titanic and i don't know you, you have this opportunity to usurp the captain's seat and take over and that increases your prestige or your pay or whatever so that's all you're focused about but of course you're not competent to run the ship and you crash into an iceberg you know it's like the bigger picture it's obviously a bad thing but you're so focused on your short term like this benefits me personally even if it harms the whole and even if in the long run it winds up harming me because it sinks the ship that i'm on but it's like people trapped in that left hemisphere way of thinking i mean you can think about a lot of examples of that recently you know in our own culture like just burning through the seed corn you know of our civilization these inherited or accumulated riches and just for like a short term like let me get my next bonus check or exceed next quarterly earnings or what even if it bankrupts the company or you know what i mean like that's where you really so see like it. I, I i was just reading over the last uh, week or so, um, I've been really, really into Bernard Cornwell, and I just read his Arthurian cycle. Um, and because I'm also, you know, reading and thinking about uh, the hemispheres, I, you know, just like watching how King Arthur is depicted in that trilogy really kind of made me think of this because, um, Basically, Arthur, of course, Arthur, you know, he's this, he's brave and he's wise and he's, he's very practical. Like he, like there's, there's a sort of one of the, one of the background things in the series, this religious ferment between uh, the rising religion of Christianity in, in Wales and uh, the old like pagan Druidic faith, which is kind of dying away. Um, and, you know, Arthur kind of, doesn't take a strong position on either one of those he's just kind of like ah, eh, you know like as long as the general peace is maintained um and he's also not a king in that series which uh is kind of important here um because like you know he's like the bastard son of uther so as far as he's concerned like he doesn't have a claim to the throne he doesn't want to be the king he doesn't want the responsibility that comes with it and he also took an oath to uh to make sure that Mordred would take the throne because Mordred is the actual sort of like legal descendant. Of Uther. Um, even though it turns out, of course, that Mordred is just this beast of a creature who is just like, you know, just ugly on the inside and out, just absolutely brutal, like selfish, venal, like just cruel, just, just an awful, awful human being. Um, but the oath takes precedence. And, you know, everyone kind of wants Arthur to be king, but Arthur himself has no interest in being king, even though he is ideally suited to be king because he's, he's able to see sort of like, you know, all sides of any dispute and he's able to, you know, and it, he, justice is very important to him. Um, maintaining the kind of harmony of the kingdom is kind of, you know, his, his what he wants more than anything else. And this is sort of similar at a, it's almost like a metaphor for like that, that interhemispheric struggle where, um, you know, the left hemisphere just is focused on power, just pretty much for its own sake and thinks it should be in charge because obviously, because its whole purpose is power, it's power over reality, right? Um, and the right hemisphere has no particular interest in being in power. 
which makes it ideally suited to be in power because its main focus is actually the truth. And then, of course, you see this in politics as well. I mean, that whole thing, that whole digression on Arthur, I mean, this is like sort of archetypal um, of, of human politics where it's like a truism that like, you know, the person who doesn't want power is the person you want in power and the person who wants power should be kept as far away from it as, as, as humanly possible. And it does also, I think, get to the political dilemma that we're experiencing now, where, um, you know, it's to me, I think, pretty obvious that we'd be a lot better off if, you know, our, our current elite were sort of cleaned out and replaced with uh, people with a more broadly sort of like, you know, right wing perspective in the, in the modern sense of that. Um, but as much as there's all this discourse about the nature of power on the right, it tends to be much more sort of like what is true about how power works kind of thing. And very little in terms of like you know, practical uh, steps towards taking power. Whereas like the left is just like laser focused on keeping and maintaining power uh, to the exclusion of all else. Um, hey, John, what, would, what do you think would be, you know, you're describing like the the right hemisphere it being the one that should be in power because they're not seeking it, what would be like a good background to look for in somebody who you would say this would be like a good training for a, a leader, like a Socratic philosopher king or whatever? Man, that's a hard question. I um, heard one. Oh, go ahead. I mean, the people that you is is Harrison in the chat? I'm here, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like this gets into logocracy. <clears throat> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess it would... That would be... like Well, Lobachevsky would, would probably say for like... It depends on the position, right? Cause he, and he distinguishes between like the, the personality type of like a head of state versus a head of government and then kind of different qualifications qualifications for what you know what in the states would be considered a congressman so to be clear for the listeners um so head of state be like a president or a king and a head of government would be like a prime minister right and in like the united states it's kind of like the the president is kind of kind of takes on both those roles but the lobachevsky thought the head of state should be kind of like older wiser more measured and the head of government should be like younger more energetic more like a, you know, um, a, a, a doer, right? You know, so probably more more energetic and left-brained in the in the sense of going out and, and getting things done. And then the the head of state watching over all of it is more like um, taking it all in. And then, um, what would the word be? Kind of um, well, balancing and 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 moderating, yeah. saying okay, yeah, you know, like a moderating governing impulse, and sort of like, well, maybe don't do that thing that you think is a good idea because actually, yeah, it's a bad idea. Yeah, right. Yeah, but like and, not, and then for like a not serving it, not serving as like a, a source of, um, a source of action, but an inhibition to action, essentially, which yeah. is well, actually bit, kind of. That's kind of actually how the British constitutional monarchy is intended to work, where the monarch is mm -hmm. the crown. The crown does not originate legislation, but has veto power over legislation. Mm -hmm. Well, and so Lobachevsky didn't wasn't like uh, wasn't totally black and white about it. Like he did think that the head of state should have 
some initiative in um, you know, proposing certain legislation or making certain decisions related to like education and um, and education and science and <clears throat> and what else? Um, well, a couple other things. But like for a background, if you if you have that personality type, that's that's like uh, you know, well, if you have that personality type and, that, and a person with that experience, like in our world, chances are it's going to be some kind of professional, right? Um, like you're probably not going to get you're not you're not going to cull that person from the the ranks of like um you know people working most most kind of like uh you know small jobs or, or whatever um but so, so when it comes to background is there's probably there's probably some backgrounds that are better than others but um uh i don't know if there would be like a you know an ideal background you know what do you guys think should, should we go for non-professionals for for head of state <laughs> No, one thing uh, that was interesting, you, 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 that pattern that you mentioned, um, I was kind of reminded, I mean, it didn't exactly map onto this, but similar in a way, and it's uh, Trump and, uh, sorry, my cat's kind of giving me trouble here, um, Trump and Steve Bannon, in terms of the way they work together, where it's like Trump, you know, maybe he was like, I, I don't know, uh, Bannon seemed to kind of provide like a bigger picture strategy, you know, whereas Trump would kind of get an idea in his head and just you know, fire at the hip and just kind of say or do things that maybe weren't so coherent in a big picture way. Whereas Steve Bannon, when they were working together before Jared Kushner kind of, you know, maneuvered him out, you know, was able to kind of like give him, I don't know, keep him kind of on point in terms of whatever his strategy was, you know, it was this kind of interesting dynamic the two of them had. And yeah, I just want to say about, you know, cause your question was like, you know, how do we get like the Socratic, uh, philosopher king or whatever and i think uh what you can see in history and it it totally makes sense also in light of the left and brian uh left and brian left and uh, left and right brain uh hemisphere thing is that leaders are often like uh they rise against their own will basically right so they are they're basically forged by circumstances um even trump you know you you go back uh like to all his interviews like he's kind of musing about politics all the time you know like for decades but he's like ah no i, I don't want to do that you know i don't want to do that but yeah maybe you know i should but i don't want to you know and then then at some point he just didn't see any chance right and and just i've, I've heard cliff high i've who you know obviously everything cliff high says take with a lot of salt but like i've heard him say several times that he thinks uh Trump was approached by elements within the uh, American security state uh, that are opposed to the bulk of the state uh, in order to, to to run. Like that, you know, basically he wasn't like seeking power. Like they were, it was like he was yeah. approached by people who were like, who were like, no, we need you specifically to do this because you're actually the perfect person to do it. And, and people um, who who do seek power, they they cannot wrap their heads around that concept, right? They they project their own like power hung hung like on, onto everybody. But when you look at it, it's like actually not the case. You know, the best people they they don't want to do that. You know, and uh, and you can see that like with uh, you know Caesar, he didn't like you know uh, plot uh, crossing the Rubicon for his entire life. You know, it's, it's just. He was forced to do that, you know, and and you, and you can see that again and again, um, and that's kind of like and and, and, and repeatedly in sees in in that like from the Rubicon crossing on, he was constantly trying to like 
find accommodations with the Senate yeah. and and you know make peace with the minimum amount of uh, death and suffering. Like, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, or, or Putin, you know, um, he like uh, didn't plot world domination like from from a young age. He just you know was basically like a a strange uh coincidence that he even ended up in in power right and and, and this is just uh like repeatedly uh, you can see that and that's kind of like the paradox you know because when we talk about you know what kind of leaders do we want and how do we get them we can't just build a school and and teach leaders you know i mean uh you know a leader would like i don't know emerge and then found his his school or whatever you know or be his own school or just by circumstance or or totally come from a totally unexpected corner right so so I think that's that's kind of like the the paradox when when we think about these things, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems, one of the intrinsic problems, is the moment you have some kind of system, some kind of formalized system for selecting leaders, which you you almost have to have, uh, but then the power hungry will start finding ways to game that system in order to climb that ladder. Um, so, you know, you can start with a system which is specifically designed to prevent those kinds of people from getting into power and come back a few generations later and lo and behold, that's exactly the kind of person you have in power now because they figured out how to game that system. And then you need a new system and it just kind of repeats. So it's almost like the only way to not have that happen is to have no system but i don't know how that would work or have sunset laws kind of in place with the system where every so often it has to be completely redone of course then that <laughs> that system itself would get co-opted by the bad actors you know that's the right hemisphere it, right there like it's just totally depressing and there is no solution that's just there is no solution exactly but, a, it's, so, it's not a, it's not a problem then, to be solved it's just a, a predicament that humanity has to live with essentially so, so then, so just just to interject very quickly about this concept of leaders and where they come from and how they rise, and particularly the idea that there must be some sort of system in place for that to happen. I think about some of the most successful, and I'll put that around in 16 quotation marks around successful, but like someone like Genghis Khan, for example, who was um, abandoned by his tribe in his youth, uh, who was essentially an outsider, an outcast. And um, that is another type of leader that can rise up, um, someone who sees the external facets from a distance, all of the dynamics in play from some sort of a, whether the distance is self-imposed or some kind of an exile. Uh, this also seems to generate, in many cases, the most successful kind of leaders. And that's the one who takes advantage of a sort of longer view of um, the entire dynamics of a region or a culture, um, and then just and and just kind of parachutes into the situation. Um, takes it, you know, because because of that distance, they're able to take advantage and exploit weaknesses and cr build alliances that um, that other people within the system that are sort of trapped, you could say, within the system couldn't imagine themselves. So I think to some degree, we're talking about a leader, a true and a leader. I think arises more from imagination. Than any other quality, um, you know, and part of that imagination is observe the observation, the careful observation of reality. And again, I think from a remove, it works better. You know, you could you could talk about Moses in the same light, for example. Um, from a remove, I think that um, you get the kind of leader who can 
imagine all kinds of potential futures and therefore is you know has a little bit more flexibility in terms of like what they're able to do you know if we were to believe um i don't know if it's apocryphal that genghis khan himself um um kind of changed the composition of the army but whoever did that whoever had the imagination the military imagination to say no we will fight from horseback with arrows or with uh, ranged weaponry uh that serve to conquer, you know, almost the entire world uh, from a certain point of view uh, at a time when, you know, regional dominance was was about the best you could hope for. So if we're talking about specifically domination, you know, we could say like, well, what did Genghis Khan want? I think that you could, one thing, one danger, I think, when we're talking about the hemispheres of the brain is like, and I've, and I've heard people kind of say this in this discussion a couple of times, and I, I know it's it's probably colloquial or semantic, but they would say something along the lines of, well, the left hemisphere wants this, and the right hemisphere wants that. And that's a very dangerous linguistic territory to get into, because the brain does not want anything, either in part or in whole, any more than a muscle does. Uh, that's the, and that, that, that's the, gets to the heart of John's article in a, in a sense no, it's where it's just, sort of it's like, just, the, it's just a function. It's just a function like that, that, that part right. of the body has a function and it just does that. It's not like, it's a tool, it's a tool, it's, but like the, there's no, there's no yeah. moral, like sort of, um, yeah. understanding that can be applied there. It's just a thing that it does. Right. Or a desire yeah. of any kind, I would argue. And so like, that's the thing. There are no desires. There are tools and there are will. Uh, there are wills uh, to accomplish things with the tools that we have. And so, yeah, it's like um, the metaphor uh, my wife gave me one time of like a skateboarder, you know, one big leg. And so if like if, if your if your um, goal is to become a very good skateboarder, you're essentially going to um, you're going to interrupt the symmetry of your being to some degree. So it's like when we're looking at when we're looking at a state of being, we're looking at symmetry or harmony or conflict or what you could call anti antithetic antithetical opposition right those are the three possible states if if we're looking at a being as something that's separate at least as a, or in some way that is um uh uh, uh you know in other words this dual state of being this idea of a dual consciousness that wants uh separate things um i don't see it that way but certainly the tools, the more, you know, if you, if, you know, it's kind of like if all you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if you're, if one hemisphere of your brain is, is far more developed than the other one, chances are something like that logic is going to kick in. It won't, it, it won't cause you to desire new things, but it, it might limit your perception about how to obtain certain results from reality, how to interact with it best. Um, when we look at something like this, the central panel of the Sistine Chapel, for example, um, we have on, you know, this is just goes to John's point about how this this precedes anything having to do with neurobiology or biology in general. Um, what we see is on the left side of that panel, we see Adam, uh, the man who is grounded, who is situated on a hillside. And he's looking up to the right where God is. Um, and God is reaching through the veil. In this case, it's a cloak shaped like the human brain. Uh, I don't know if you know, that's pretty common knowledge that like he's Mig Miguel so God actually is, talks about talks about this uh, somewhere you know. somewhere in the matter of things yeah right and you can actually expand that if you look at the above and the the, the panels above and below um, it also tell it expands that story somewhat 
But like the central idea too, is that I think is reified by that in the sense that yes, obviously when we're talking about what, you know, the use of the right hemisphere appears to be um, more about, um, you know, the whole of the, of reality and about its hierarchy. So like the idea that God is situated above flying um, in this brain shape, um, which again, literally the right hemisphere we're looking at. Uh, and so it's in this sense, sort of like, okay, so that's the tool that you use to access the divine to some degree, which is hierarchical by nature, which means that it places things in the order of, you know, in the, in the metaphysical order that they belong in, let's say. Um, and then the, you look at the other side of it and you see the grounded Adam, who is, um, I guess, representative of that left hemisphere, which is like engaging in regular action with reality, uh, with the material of reality. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that can be, that those states could be in harmony with each other and should be in harmony with each other. I don't think it's so much about the right brain is in power or in control. I think what it means is something along the lines of they're in their proper order of function. And this is the so first is, this you is apprehend why, reality with the right. Yeah. This is why I always try to frame it in terms of like, you know, you have left hemisphere dominance for like, you know, in that case, like it's sort of usurped its proper role, right? Um, it's put itself in the place of God. Uh, and But the alternative to that is not actually right hemisphere dominance per se. It's, it's, it's actually more balance between the two. Um Right. Yeah, 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 go right. On. The, the harmony, harmony, not symmetry, because symmetry would be a copy. Um, what we're looking at is something that's in, acting in concert, parts that are acting in concert with each other. Like we do look for beauty. We do find beauty in symmetry in certain other elements of our physical material, like a, a diver, for instance. Like when you're ranking the, the, the quality of their dive, you're looking for perfect symmetry for one side matching the other. Um, but we're looking, interestingly enough, at the arts, we are looking for harmony whether it's in music, whether it's in painting, um, in dance, uh, that's, it's, it's typically like the way that all of these, um, these, these parts work. Yeah, there we go. Um, and as you see the arm down in the lower left corner, that's actually Eve's arm. Uh, and you'll see the, op the, the, again, what could be called the op, the opposite, the confluence or the, um, the contradiction of this scenario where you have Eve on the left and then you have the devil on the right. Um, but again, it's like, I, I think that point of connection, that's what we're looking for. Like, in other words, that's where that's where the artist wants us to look. That is the most important part of this entire picture. It is not God or Adam, but that point of connection between the two, which is this, again, which would be using the body, including the brain for its whole purpose, um, which would be, of course, to service the good and to, uh, you know, to expand um, life and 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 intelligence and order throughout the universe uh and i think and that what, you know just looking at this image um what i find kind of interesting about it is so you know adam's on the left left hemisphere god's on the right right hemisphere but due to like visual cross linking um the the right field of view actually goes to the left hemisphere and, and vice versa so it's almost like this kind of intuitive, like, I don't know, I, I very strongly doubt like Michelangelo sort of like understood that as some kind of like a neurobiological level, right? Like this was- Well, he did something. understand it. He didn't understand it. He had different language for it. 
He had no language for it because yeah. he was because he was apprehending reality directly um, from the right hemisphere, you know, using the right hemisphere to apprehend objective reality directly. He didn't need to know anything about biology. He didn't need to look in, at a cadaver. Uh, right, right. He that's understands right. That's it. Of, yeah. So when yeah. I say like he didn't understand, what I what I I should have been more precise. Like, um, like he he wouldn't have had like the the modern contemporary knowledge of the hemispheric cognitive differences right um i mean he was obviously thinking something to do with the brain i mean i don't think it's at all accidental that god's sort of cloud or whatever that is clamshell it's a, it's a cloak it i think and that, that is the yeah, veil cloak, that is the veil essentially right but it, it's very it's very brain looking and that's probably not accidental i mean you know he he had a background in anatomy right um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but so like, again, like the, the knowledge of like got, how that all corresponded, you know, we, we've all thought of the brain as the seat of consciousness, like long before um, we had, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, sort of yeah, yeah. Ex exhaustive electronic mappings of it. You know, people have understood uh, for a long time, they get knocked on the head and you, con you, you lose consciousness and sometimes get all you, funny. you get all funny and you never really come back from that. And that's been known for ages. Yeah. Yeah, and it's actually it's it's fairly obvious when you think about it. I mean, it's sort of like all of the all of the most important um, transactional gear is 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 concentrated in a very small space, not just in mankind, but in you know most animals. Uh, you know, at least uh, anything that's got a body plan even remotely similar is going to concentrate all of its um, transactional gear, like its observational apparatus, is all going to be contained in a very small area. Um, and yeah, of course, we know it. We know you, you cover an eye and like, you know, you can't see out of that eye. You lose the eye, you can never see out of it. Like we, uh, a lot of that is very, you know, it's sort of like everything that's transpired since then. Um, and I'm, I'm saying maybe across the last three to 400 years, um, in terms of the language development of explaining the mechanisms in reducible detail, I think has actually led us off the beaten path, uh, off track uh, somewhat in terms of understanding, uh, you know, how biology um, interacts with reality. That'd be the nature of those models, you know? So it's like, we're trying, everything that we're trying to do in science is trying to model it. So to an extent, the more fidelity and granularity you try and get, just like Luke was saying at the beginning, you know, the more nuance you're missing, that, you know, the deeper that you want to drill down. Um, I, wa I wanted to comment on the leadership thing based on what Mark was saying. Uh, and I, I think it's obvious that what you want in a leader is balance. You know, we, we want that optimal balance, that optimal hierarchy, whatever that is. And I would say, where, where do they come from? Uh, I, I, what better person to pick than somebody that because of that balance they've been able to be successful you know they've had that right hemisphere dominance but they've been able to maintain that internal locus of control that's enabled them to have agency and be very very successful without without gaming the system i ideally ideally in a society where you can still do that without being somewhat of a piece of shit would be optimal and then with that wealth and prosperity they're driven by noblesse oblige to lead i think that that's kind of what everybody wants <clears throat> a, in a, leader. a good 
a good example might be Napoleon, actually, because um, everybody's kind of like now reading up on him because the, the movie is coming out. And uh, it turns out that he's like uh, one of the most remarkable guys like ever. I mean, this is just crazy when you read his story. And uh, what, what Mark was saying you know, about like being an, uh, kind of an outsider can sometimes help. And that was definitely the case for him. And, you know, like he, he was like this total military genius, um, but he also wrote romance novels you know i mean talk about a guy who was like balanced i mean it's crazy like total intellectual you know he could recite uh goethe you know uh, by heart you know and uh like some it's just totally incredible you know, when you when you look at it and i think that's kind of like what what you want in a leader you know uh, as you said grand um that kind of balance where you can be like a romantic you know write romance novels kind of thing uh, and also be like a military hero. I mean, um, and be and like a, just a to... math genius, you know, like that Napoleon also was, you know, he could calculate uh -huh. trajectories, you know, for cannons in his head and stuff, and then go to some blacksmith and, and the next day and give him instructions like from memory, because he saw a certain hill, you know, he knew exactly what kind of cannon he should forge, you know, based on his calculations in his head. I mean, you know, it's like, um, if you have that kind of balance, um, then, you know, like, at least you're like a great, great man, you know, I mean, whether the, you know, what you use it for, then is maybe not a different question. But uh, yeah, so I, I feel like his initial, his initial rise to power too, like it wasn't, I don't know Napoleon's biography terribly, terribly well. And like, obviously, you know, he made himself emperor. So there is some degree of ambition there. But you know, it sort of started, it seems to have started with him sort of like looking around at uh, post-revolutionary France and just like the horrible things that were going on and saying, you know what? No, I, I, I can't allow Robespierre and, you know, these 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 monsters to continue doing this stuff. Um, hence turning history the history rhymes is probably something that may happen in the U.S. Yeah, well, that's, 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 yeah. Too, um, you know. Charles, Charles Haywood had a, had a whole uh, long essay uh, a while back um, asking about the red Caesar versus blue Caesar question, yeah. because there's this, this ongoing, you know, it's like, okay, you know, if we're going to have Caesarism, like is, is the Caesar going to come from the left or from the right? Uh, Cause like Napoleon would be obviously an example of left Caesar in the sense that like, you know, he preserved much of what the revolution had done Um maybe just to keep the peace or what have you rolled rolled some of it back you know uh but uh um, i mean he was a, he was a populist right i mean and he yeah he definitely yeah. made the situation better for the people and that's always the test you know like whether you think of of leaders like in whether they're left or right or whatever you know if they're like actually making a difference for the people you know that's that's kind of like the yardstick i think and and that he definitely did i mean this was like mm. a total crazy like this was russia 1990s maybe even worse kind of stuff you know when when well, i would say <laughs> i would say more like russia in 1919 yeah, uh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah right right and uh and he you know if you read his letters i, I read a bunch of his original works and he was also like not against religion at all you know he protected um 
uh, religion from like all those revolutionary crazies. And, yeah, uh, like he, he like because like they initially were like, you know, trying to turn all the churches into like temples of reason and have metric time and all of this like ridiculous shit. And, like Napoleon kind of got rid of all that. He's like, OK, we could the priests can come back. Like the Catholic Church is fine. You know, like we're not going to interfere. Um, I think if you have that balance, that is inevitable because you're going to hold yourself accountable for outcomes. So really, I think leaders at that scale, they're all going to have some form of grandiose narcissism to even think that they're worthy of being in that role. And, you know, in the case of Napoleon, it sounds like wasn't narcissistic personality disorder because he had the goods to back it up. And that's what makes it, pathological is when it's not aligned with the evidence but if he really was you know the shit you know it's not well, it's not it's also worth noting that napoleon, yeah like at least early on napoleon was not given to um he was given to expeditions but not to military adventures or certainly not to aggression i mean it was, mm. a, it was essentially the alliance between um great britain and russia that kind of forced uh and the third coalition that kind of forced the um his hand, so to speak, in like be in becoming a military empire. Um, so it's like I think that ambition, yeah, certainly, um, that's part of it. Um, but what is it, the ambition to do? What exactly? You know what I mean? Like when we think about Donald Trump, Donald Trump has just spent the rest of his days in Mar-a-Lago, just sort of golfing and and having a good time. Um, and and Luke had mentioned the, or maybe it was Grant that mentioned, mentioned the noblesse oblige, the idea that like, well, I need to give back. And then you add to that also the outsider syndrome, because, in, in, you know, even though Donald Trump was, you know, raised by a wealthy uh, real estate uh, developer, certainly if you look at his upbringing, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was almost a graduate type situation where like, again, like he's the crass outsider. He's the guy um, oh, uh, in what you call it. Um, uh, oh, what was the name of Rodney Dangerfield's character in um, in uh, the golfing movie? I'm sorry, Caddyshack. Yeah, I don't, I don't Caddyshack. know. Caddyshack. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It's sort of like school. he's that guy. Yeah, or back to school, right? He's the guy who kind of like the brusque New Yorker who deals with mobsters in Atlantic City, and he's he's garish and he's he's gaudy and. You know, everybody thinks his taste stinks and, you know, and, and like, it's sort of like he's, he's sort of the outsider amongst that group, uh, let's say, he's of the sort of the wealthy titans Homer, of industry. He's Homer Simpson's, Homer Simpson's idea of what, what a rich person does, right? Like, right, right, right. I, I will build right. myself a 10-story golden body, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's sort of like so so you have like those qual and again, it's sort of like so he didn't have to take this step. I think it's interesting this theory that somehow he was um corralled or in, in some way um uh you know promoted uh into this position or, or or convinced by other people like to do it. Um it doesn't really sound like him, but uh I think it's very possible that he you know, having seen interviews that he did even in the 90s, late 90s, where he was talking about the um, the sort of the transition into a, a, a bipolar, you know, Sino-American world and the idea of um, of uh, the trade deficits that were developing between uh, particular and specifically China and the United States and the, the problems uh, inherent in NAFTA. Um, 
He's been talking about that stuff for a very long time. And he, so maybe not so much ambition and maybe a bit of hubris is what we're talking about. The idea of I can fix this. I know that if I was in that seat, I could turn this car around or at least steer it away from the cliff. Well, I and think, so I, 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 I think, no. I think there's. And that may be it's, left brain, it's, it's, uh, it's, left it's, hemisphere. It's really, for well, I mean, like, it's, I think, um, you know, obviously every human being has both left and right hemisphere, right? Uh, and it's, I think it's almost never the case that even any given individual human is sort of like purely in one or the other mode throughout the, the course of their life. Um, and if you look at leaders like Napoleon or Julius Caesar, and who knows, maybe Trump will ultimately be looked on as as one i don't think he will but you know like certainly a great man in american history already um but uh there does seem to be this kind of like initial like just comparing caesar and napoleon there's like this sort of like initial reluctance to take power uh and then this kind of like sort of almost like resigned sense of like well if no one else is going to do it, like, I guess I'll be the one. And, but then as things go on, because they end up being quite successful, uh, they, they pass a moment of hubris. Like they get to a certain point where maybe they, they, you know, they, they do push a little bit too far, which you could sort of see is maybe like they tip a little bit too far into like the left hemisphere sort of power seeking mode. Right. Like, and that ends up being their downfall. Like if Napoleon had not tried to declare war on the entirety of Europe and, you know, become the emperor of the entire continent, you know, if he hadn't tried to invade Moscow and you know, all these kinds of things, he, he probably would have reigned quite a bit longer and that imperial system would have lasted longer. And similarly, like Julius Caesar, like if he'd, um, well, I mean, his downfall was being a bit too trusting, I suppose, but uh even that is a kind of hubris like i have set such a great example and i am so beloved that surely my enemies finally will see the light nor would they dare move against me because you know i am now worshipped as a god and it turns out actually you no know, they will move against you and that'll be the end of you um so so maybe maybe it's just that they get out of balance but i mean i i think that that's that's key like having that balance that's what you want i mean that's what you want for everybody right I, everybody wants to be optimal right like the optimal balance for doing like interacting with reality in a meaningful positive way assuming you got kind of normal morals and you're you know neurotypical in terms of like levels of empathy and stuff like that if you want to be able to leave the world a better place than when you got here, like you want to have that balance or you're not going to be able to be effective. You know, if you're out of balance, all the efforts that you engage in to maximize power are ultimately going to be counterproductive because they're not aligned with reality. But and to confuse you, things a little bit more, there's different kinds of balance, right? Um, so, you know, you've got like static balance, like, you know, for instance, when you're like standing on like one foot and you're not moving in like a yoga pose or something like that. Right. Uh, and you, you could maybe analogize that to like, um, you know, both hemispheres being in balance at the same time. 
and then you got like dynamic balance where um, you're constantly shifting your position, but you remain sort of uh, stable throughout, right? Like for instance, when you're walking, you're dynamically balanced. Like at any given point in the movement, like you could topple over because you're completely unbalanced, but like uh, the, the, the movement itself is balanced so you don't fall. And that would be sort of a little bit more like shifting from like, a very much left brain only way of interacting with the world to a right brain only way of interacting with the world and sort of or observing the world, I suppose, and kind of like going back and forth between those two. So well, since the yeah, since the world is dynamic, you want the dynamic balance. I, you know, I I would stipulate that dynamic balance is what you want. You know, and and really, even from a physiological perspective, in that metaphor, I think it perhaps is the same. If you have excellent dynamic balance, like I can't think of a neurological condition that you would not have good static balance if you have good dynamic balance. Um, although, I mean, there's, you know, maybe some, I won't get into that. That's, that's getting too far into the weeds, but yeah, well, I, what I want well, to interesting with like, I mean, some of the things like you have uh, great generals who are not successful in peacetime you know they just get into trouble they just kind of fizzle out and then they go in the civilian world like, i mean thinking about some of the generals who are successful during the civil war on both sides uh, yeah. you know was the people Sherman. who were like the good career Sh officers yeah, sure, you know, sure, Sherman was, was a great general but he was he was a terrible president for example well i want to i want to come back to that uh, that distinction between the head of state and head of government add a couple things and then ask a question so one of, the other th one of the other things that Lobachevsky says in Logocracy, he talks about two types of genius. And he says there's the type of genius that is, uh, that kind of like has a, um, almost like a spoiled or like molly-coddled upbringing, or just a, a comfortable upbringing, and so hasn't really encountered any <clears throat> hardship that to, to kind of forge a certain type of personality. He says there's a second type of genius, which is the one that has struggles from an early age and has to put all of all of his talents all of his genius all of his energy into into putting into applying all of his capacity all his all of his ability into like overcoming um certain hardships and you know learning certain hard lessons and that i, I can't remember if he says that's the kind of genius that should be a head of state or not but uh but he says that's the kind of leadership or that's the kind of genius that's kind of both are necessary but that's the one that is is kind of required for a certain type of leadership position um for the first is so, the one that you want writing poetry and uh you know right or, uh, doing or just, sciences um, and yeah 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 well and, i think uh, i think even more important life experience yeah I, I was thinking, like, if you could sum it up, though, if you could say, like, okay, like, there some genius could come from both categories or something in between. I think maybe the 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 factor that matters the most of all is, did you have skin in the game at any point? Mm -hmm. So I think that's why so many leaders um, hail from a sort of a, a military background to some degree. If you look at the whole entire landscape of human history, you're going to be looking at most. I'd say probably the vast majority of leaders yeah. are, are at least. Um, somewhat have a military background so you think, think that's, that's because... changed a lot since like world war one I? I mean at some point you know generals and yeah. officers used to lead from the front and now they lead I actually from the rear I, as in many actually looked in yeah it's changed in a lot of ways to the yeah. rear you know 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I looked into this in the question of the European or the, the British monarchy um, not too long ago. And it turns out the last king to lead from the front was like in the mid 18th century or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been some time since our, our leaders have exposed themselves to direct uh, physical danger. Yeah, and I think that that's that's key, and that and that you're seeing. I, I think you can almost say that some, at least, some of the failures of leadership are born from that. I, and I'm not going to say all of them, but like you have to you have to think that to some degree, when everything is an abstraction, including life and death and military adventures, and and just sort of like like when you think about the meat grinder that you know the that is the Ukrainian Russo war. It's sort of like, you know, the idea that like that, like you would be so distant from it and that you would be sending these mass shipments of cash and arms to something that's essentially no more real to you than a computer simulation or or a game of risk. You know, but I have a ca- I have, sort of like, there's there's a there's a counterpoint to that. Okay. John McCain. Well, right. no, okay. Right. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the uh, the counterfactual is is correct. I'm, I'm I, obviously like a, a bad a, a bad leader can come from anywhere. I think, including the battlefield, clearly, obviously. Um, uh, I, what I'm saying is that I think that maybe the loss of like that sort of I'm not going to say requirement, but kind of a prerequisite. You know what I mean? Like even even Ike. You know, it's it's sort of like you you know when you look at Eisenhower's career. Like it, it not not just military service, not just lead, not just battlefield experience, but also just like you know when he was part of the original expeditionary force, that army expeditionary force that um, of uh, army engineers that sort of like um, uh, went from one side of the country to the other, kind of trying to map out the best way, uh, the best routes for interstates and bridges and whatnot. Like it's you know, sort of like you, again, you have like that 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 broader perspective, and also just kind of skin in the game and knowledge of the of the of the terrain, not just the maps, not just the models, but the terrain itself. Um, and 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 that is what warfare is to some degree. It is the terrain, man. You know, it is not a map. It is not a model. Um, yeah. Those are things that are employed for life or death results, which is essentially all of reality. Um, but it's very condensed and 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 um, and sort of hypercharged, like when you get into a matters of war. And I think that that for that reason, you are going to find your best leaders having at least some military experience. Okay. With Eisenhower, I would say, I mean, he may not have been, you know, on the front lines, like landing at Omaha Beach or anything like that. But he absolutely positively had to win, you know, the big battles win the war you know and there's so even there I mean, there's a big difference where he had skin in the game versus i mean now you look at all the stuff that led up to the afghanistan debacle where you know they pull the you know troop the troops out before they pull civilians out they you know leave the more easily yeah. defended air bases this landlocked country and fall back on this yeah. harder to defend, you know, count on the Taliban for the security at that air base to like, you know, we've just been fighting these guys for a while. Give the Taliban, yeah. Taliban basically a kill list. Here's the people we would like to get out who are, have been working with us. Could you please, you know, let them through, you know, that kind of thing, like right. all these series of blunders that like a E1 private they do it because it's absolutely zero skin in the game. They don't need to win the war. They just need to funnel a bunch of fucking money to their 
bankster, you know, defense contractor buddies, and that's all it's about. And at the end of the day, they're going to cash in by getting a, a you know position on a board of Raytheon or whatever. Like General, so just, Mark. To, just to interject with like Eisenhower, he did serve in the infantry in World War One, so he did have battlefield experience. He had skin in the game. In a war, by the way, which was also kind of outrageous when you think about it. You know, you know who like, else, you know you know who else served in the infantry in World War One and was a decorated combat veteran. Hitler. Multiple, yeah. <laughs> and he was an artist. Yeah. <laughs> yes, like, he was. You know, well, I hate to say it, but okay. you know, if we're talking like left, right brain balance, like, well. <laughs> well, no, okay. So but that's the thing. And and that's why Good I said we're not trying to be monetized that, here. If you expand, but if you, well, I, but again, like the divine does not necessarily mean the divine good. Like I said, if you expand the frame of, um, oh, yeah, and of like, that, and like, uh, and young, of that picture in, in, on the Sistine Chapel. Young, young was taught, and like young was basically talking about, like during the 30s, he was like, yeah, Hitler's pretty much possessed by the spirit of Odin. And um, do you guys ever see there's this famous 19th century? Uh, painting of the wild hunt um, with like Odin oh, yes. in front of it. Have you seen this? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, it's it's Hitler. Like, it's obviously Hitler. Like, um, like, that's just so creepy. Like, you know, it's like before the guy was even born and some artist like saw this vision, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. The divine does yeah. not necessarily need to me. <laughs> that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, no, yeah. no, you could be in constant. And, and again, like, it's sort of like when we look at art and so it's sort of like, you know, and, and you, you said, wow, it's creepy. It's spooky. Um, it gets less creepy and spooky. I think if you're willing to accept the premise that, that, that what art is or what an artist is, is someone who can see someone outside of the normal chain of causality. Um, that's a very difficult premise to accept. And again, Particularly, like in a in a society which I agree, generally speaking, is in the thrall of people who have that one big skateboard leg of a left hemisphere, which the, that hammer that 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 they use to hammer down all problem nails. Um, if you look at it in that reducible, mechanical, and I think really sort of childlike and and immature way of looking at the human condition, um, you know, as though as though everything is just sort of its surface and nothing else. Uh, then that's going to be very confusing to see paintings like that. It'd be very confusing even to imagine that, um, you know, that in the Middle Ages you had people who were adorning their battle, their their banners with dinosaurs, for example. And so, well, how could they know that? They didn't have no dinosaur bones, and it's just sort of like so to cross that. And again, I think that is to some degree what the painting shows too: is that like you know to penetrate the veil, even somewhat, is to in some ways see how all the various pieces connect into a coherent whole whereas the left would be more about um and 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 again both politically and maybe it aligns biologically just like everything else does um that the left is more about tearing things apart um putting each piece under a microscope um well, trying to left. identify function through destruction um uh through you say deconstruction but you know it's originally an, it, it, i think it, it was it, heidegger it, 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 that's so the, le the left hemisphere has this process of analysis and th synthesis, right? Where it's like, you know, it's breaking things apart into their, their component elements. And then it tries to use a model of some sort to reassemble those parts into a coherent whole, but it forever fails to do this. Um, 
like it never quite is able to to make that that quantum jump from like the, the disconnected parts to the, the holistic entity and the right hemisphere basically starts out seeing the whole uh and then the parts are automatically seen in relation in proportion to that whole to to bring this back to like the the, the political question actually this connects to right one of the most annoying things about debating with people on like the hard left is that they have this i i find very often this sort of like almost like autistic way of being like well here's this one exception here's this one detail that you got wrong therefore your whole argument is wrong right? they're really focused on these like small little niggling details um but you know when you pull back and you look at like they're sort of it they're, they're sort of uh overarching image of the whole of reality you're like man that's completely bonkers insane it, conversely i find very often with people who are more found on the right is that like they seem much more likely to get small details wrong like you know think of like your mega memos uh getting into QAnon or something like that right like they'll say a lot of stuff which is just like nonsense like it's just obviously not true um uh or they'll you know they'll, or they'll get small details wrong but yet the, the the overarching narrative like when they're talking about like yeah pedophile elites doing satanic rituals it's like is that literally true well maybe maybe not but it's at at least a metaphor level not far off from you know what's actually going on here right um so yeah yeah i mean you're talking uh, about the fallacy essentially you're talking about the fallacy of composition which yeah. like a lot of people okay. yeah. engage in left and right these days, but it's, but yeah, I think you know, the, le the, the sort of the postmodern left is a kind of a, a fallacy generator almost like it's, it, it is very difficult to, to, to have a, um, to have a, a fruitful conversation um, and more and more so lately, I think with someone who um, it, particularly that fallacy, the composition fallacy, because it is essentially at the heart of it at the heart of all fallacies i'm going to the exception uh is going to be going to rule supreme over the rule um yeah, and that yeah good no i was just gonna say uh, you know one point mcgilchrist makes uh and this is really fascinating i think is that uh you know actually the the schizophrenic um doesn't suffer from a lack of logic you know but uh from an overabundance of logic so it's basically only logic right and uh so you can construct it's not, like the abs the, it's not the absence of reason it's the absence of everything but reason. yeah exactly and and the thing is uh, you can construct like the weirdest craziest like paranoid um ideas that are totally uh logically sound and consistent right and and so you can see that on the left as well these days right with some of these theories you know and and they're actually it's people often say like oh they're they're just illogical i mean there's certainly some of that too but a lot of it is actually like super logical right so if you if you accept like the initial premise you know that is uh, which you, of course like you, you you probably shouldn't but uh but you know that that's that's a fascinating thing to watch and and you can see like how how that makes people immune against arguments because they within their logic you know it all makes perfect sense and they can actually argue that stuff you know and uh, and you see that the same thing with some of these wild you know uh, pseudo-scientific or philosophical ideas right that 
we we don't have con consciousness or something like that you know uh, uh, which is like totally logical you know these people like are hyper intelligent and like and argue brilliantly you know but uh, but the thing is you know like uh man you know like maybe your initial premise there's something wrong here but and then, not only yeah, and not only do they not only do they argue not only do they argue brilliantly right but you know especially with like academics yeah kind of academic scientists who will argue things like there's like consciousness is an illusion it's generated by the brain whatever um they they frequently have a phenomenal command of the the details of you know how things work right like they know their neurobiology they can tell you like you know the different kinds of neurons and the different regions of the brain and like the specific functions that have been found to be performed by you know this or that you know um uh like sub component of the brain like they, but they don't have that overarching holistic image yeah and and this and is a trap is you know this this logic trap and detail trap i think it can happen in all kinds of domains right and i think these days you know we can see it uh, in this political craziness like more on the left but um it can happen also like on on you know with right wing philosophy and and things like that and and conspiracy theory is actually also a good example you know i mean not that uh we all know that there are conspiracies that are real you know that's for sure but there's this certain type of like uh, crazy conspiracy thinking you know where you go like oh yeah the, the the cousin of the sister of this guy you know worked for university and the dean was uh, connected to the rockefellers and you know and there you go it's com controlled opposition you know and that is sort of thinking um uh, which uh, it can happen also on on you know it can, on the right for example or it's it's just a trap you know this hyper logic uh that is well actually in, like, is, conspiracy yeah. theorizing is um when it becomes pathological this is a left hemisphere trait not a right hemisphere trait yeah. to like yeah. sort of like have this like paranoid ideation that you sort of you know it's all it's all it's all plotting against me you know this is the thing that schizophrenics do it's paranoid schizophrenia um well, so when like, i was reading matter with things there was when he was talking about uh, about certain types of schizophrenic um like delusions uh, when I was reading through them, because there's a lot that are kind of like obscure that you don't really hear about. I was reading through them. And I'm like, oh, wow, a lot of this stuff is like just typical conspiracy theory, um, like stuff like there's, uh, there, there are names for it. I forget them now. But um, so there's one about um, uh, like, uh, like re replacement people or something. Um, so you like uh, a, a spouse might think that his or her spouse has been replaced by, you know, a robot, like uh, an imposter. And you just you see that in all kinds of conspiracy theories online, where it's like, oh no, this person's been replaced. Um, that's not the that's Joe, not the real. Joe, Trump that's or, not that's not real Joe Biden. That's but maybe yeah, not maybe, real Fetterman. Well, yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, again, there there comes the premonition of art again, because what do we see every time that we see a concept that sounded like science fiction when we first heard it, that sounded like something unbelievable and fantastical, and lo and behold, uh, suddenly we're smack dab in the middle of it. So like you know, and like, and I'm not saying that those people aren't crazy. I mean, I'm saying that you could be crazy and also, um, in some way, be. And a matter of fact, I think it's very likely that in many cases, some people who have um, their, a variety of mental illnesses are rubbing up against that divine sphere, yeah. but they can't really tell reality. They can't tell apart. Um, what was the uh, the metaphor someone came up with one time? It was of a coin that you find 
um, and it's lying face up. And uh, and and you're pointing at the coin, and 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 uh, some people will look at it and say like, "Well, what does that coin show? Oh, it shows the face of a president." And then the crazy person will say, "No, no, no, it's an eagle. It's an eagle, right?" And it's just like they're right. <laughs> there is an eagle under there, uh, but you know, it's it's uh, it's both really. And like so, and so, I think that the idea of just again not having things in balance um, that could be the you know somebody who is way out of balance towards the right. And it's just seeing the 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 shapes outside of the cave instead of the shadows, but isn't seeing the shadows at all and doesn't see the cave. Something along those lines, where like where too much information, you know, TMI, right? Too much happening too fast without the proper framework, without the without the balance and the and the the um, the care and the attention to detail and and so many of the things that go into like nurturing some you know a mind to becoming a mature um, adult you know kind of presence that can just, well, that is, can just so, assess so, so, make 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 logical assessments about reality and conduct tests internally and also imagine states and and yeah. do it but do it with a kind of a grace. And ease. So this is like some, um, this is some, like, so to, yeah. to build on that. Like I think like there are definitely times where you're sort of like you know schizo, whether we're talking in the, the, the literal sense or just like the, the internet sense of schizo. Um, they might not be literally factually correct in their description, but they may well be metaphorically correct, right? Like. You know, an example I used in a recent piece was like, you know, the, the, with the midwit meme uh, talking about like, you know, vaccinations where like the grug brain um, who could stand in for the schizo was like, I don't want no 5G magnets, you know, in my skin or whatever. Uh, and it's like, OK, that's probably not literally true, but, um, you know, at a metaphor- <laughs> but, at a met- but at like a metaphorical level, it's like, obviously, there's something funny going on with this, which is not in your best interests. So. You know, it's leading him to make the correct decision, right? So, you know, I, 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 this is how I kind of think about Cliff High a lot of the time. Like, that, you know, he'll say things. I'm like, I don't think that's at all true, you know, like in, in, a, in a literal sense. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, it's picking, he, picking up a pattern, right? Like from, he's picking from exactly. The and he, you know, and, and he is and, actually, and, the, a, he, and he's a self admitted paranoid schizoid, schizophrenic. He yeah, is a self admitted paranoid brain, schizophrenic. Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. your, your, your schizo left brain kind of interprets it like you know, like the the signal that you're getting from from the cosmos or whatever, like in, in kind of funny ways, right? So you you go like, oh yeah, five G magnets, uh, whatever, you know. Um, but there's actually behind it is is something real, and and on that on that note, because uh, I, I found it interesting, uh, Mark, also what you what you said about like how to to reach that sort of balance, you know, and and you also said. Um, and critiqued rightfully, you know, that we shouldn't talk about like the left brain doing this and the right brain, you know, feeling that. And it's it's true, you know, it's like it's kind of like the the selfish gene fallacy, right? So yeah, the, the selfish genes there, they're, they're plotting this and that, you know. Uh, we shouldn't like it's it's not really how it works. Uh, I think a better way would be like to say like that there's an eye, you know, like the 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 real eye or like the the the, the cosmic eye or whatever it is, you know, and and this looks through the the brain hemispheres you know it's kind of like a um like like our the the eyes way of interacting with reality either through the left or the right brain and hemisphere kind of thing and and that implies that you have a certain choice right so you you can actually impact that process 
The problem is that usually when we are in one mode or the other, especially if we're in left brain hemisphere mode, we we identify with the left brain hemisphere. We we think this is the eye, right? So we cannot really, uh, that's what McGilchrist says as well, you know, in, in left brain hemisphere mode, that's all we, we know, you know, so that's why it can be such a trap. And if you live exclusively in the, in the left brain, then you think your your eye is the left brain, no? But in fact, it's just a lens through which you look at, well, at the word. And I think that you know that, me, yeah. But I just want to add something to that. So as a as something of a panpsychist, I, I see I see it slightly differently. So when when I'm hungry, um, I think that my stomach literally is hungry. That there's some aspect of my stomach that wants food and that uh, that translates through the brain and that the part of the brain that it translates through because it's getting signals from the stomach wants me to eat and i am i am somewhat separate but encompass all of that so i i i would say it may even be correct to say that the left brain wants something and that the right brain sees something but that that is within a larger kind of field of of awareness and cognition because we have like we have competing um, competing wants and desires, and some of them are very obviously, like from a <clears throat> from an experiential basis, very obviously body based. Like my body wants this, my body does not like this. But I can say, oh well, my body might not like this. You know, my body, like in in uh, in Dune, my body, my hand may not like the, this pain box and may want to pull out very much. But I am going to control it and say and override it and say no, because I actually want to keep my hand in this pain and in this in this box for a for a different reason for for a higher desire. So well, that's an interesting of- way of looking at the word want, I guess. Like it, 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 this might be semantics to some degree, I guess. I mean, it's a sort of like that. For me, it's like reserving certain words for you know, the person rather than the material, mm-hmm. like, like that's that I just, I'm just not sure like what, what the best language to use there is to, because it, it feels like so much jargon has been generated um, by the fields of evolutionary biology, neurochemistry, et cetera, et cetera. It's just sort of like, I want to, I, I guess I understand what Harrison's saying and to some degree I agree with it, but like the use of that language, the idea that, my stomach can want something. Um, you know, it's sort of like if I trace back the causal chain, it's like, I want to stay alive and I need to eat to do it. And 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 so whatever emanations, like if I have stomach pains, so it's like, yeah, there's a locality involved in there because like this is something that maps directly back to the source of being. Um, and, and like in order to persist in the material, I must feed. Um, but... It's like it's like the, the, the with the schizophrenia issue. Like I, like I think that some to some degree it's born of like the idea of a multiplicity of being, like that is has been like sort of the, you know that's been the hip trend for the last couple of hundred years. This idea that like even being itself is somehow reducible to parts. Um, this is what Mary Shelley was getting at in Frankenstein. In other words, like this was, you know, it's like people talk about the romanticists, but like really what Shelley was to some degree was something more like Uncle Ted Kaczynski of her time. You know, she was seeing um, through the rise of surgical procedures, um, through, uh, you know, various forms of pharmacology that were on the rise. Uh, certainly she was um, she was subjected to a very gruesome abortion uh, slash miscarriage when she was young. 
um, she had seen the horrors of material reductionism and of like looking at the body as though it were a bunch of disparate parts, a machine, um, something that could be kind of cobbled together and torn apart at will. And not, um, only, and not, that, only, and not only that, but like, I mean, at a, at a deep metaphorical level, actually, the, the Frankenstein's monster um, works as a metaphor for how the left hemisphere tries to create reality. Um, yes. So, you know, it's basically yeah. takes all the of monster is the monster is it, that version that yeah. it is. So it's, it's all of these disparate and individually lifeless parts, which are kind of stitched together in in a and they're they're all out of proportion with one another. It's like the, the final product is monstrous. Um, and then but still, even even in, in that a miracle has to be invoked. Right. Like like. You know, you, you actually don't have uh, um, a logical way for how those dead parts come together to make a living yeah. whole. You have to it's, have that little spark of magic that happens, you know, because ultimately the left hand correct, it, cannot animate. It, it cannot animate the dead. Right. Um, and that is why which, and that is why Victor calls calls the monster demon at many points throughout the novel. Remember, that was mm. that was really its alternative name. Because even he recognized the idea that no, I am not God. I do not have the power to animate uh, anything. Really, uh, certainly not in this um, unnatural well, it was, way. It was it was, the, yeah. it was the quintessential divine intervention, right? Like a lightning strike that gets channeled down, and you know, the spark of light. Well, in the, in the book, in the, the book, it was in the book, it was different. To be fair, in the book, his midnight oh, labors okay. were very. They they were very. It was very like. Um, Furtive, like like she described them as almost like a bunch of alchemy. Like a, this is a process that took a, like a, a long period of time. So there was alchemy. There was some kind of magic at play. There was you know this was this was someone who had absorbed himself um, in you know he's a university student, but he had gone he had traveled down a, a road of the occult that uh, that of lost sciences and arts that he was sort of cobbling together. She makes it very mysterious in the book. I like the the mm -hmm. movie interpretation is great with the, the bolt of lightning and it's very Promethean and all that stuff. Yeah. I just um, revealed myself. It, I just revealed myself as someone who's never read the book. In this whole it's a, it's a, look, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny, it's a sloppy mess of a novel, but it's brilliant. It's brilliant in, in, in so many ways. You know, um, it's and because it, because, and prophetic and prophetic uh, to the point where you, you know, you almost, it's one of those novels where you, you, I would point to it and say, you cannot deny that artists to some degree see the future. Now, okay, how so cloudy I wanna, I wanna, that I wanna, is or how perfectly or imperfect that is. No, about that with the art. I mean, something that John said earlier when you were talking about people being metaphorically correct, and I think that kind of hits it at how I guess in looking at a piece of at a, at a plot for a movie or a book and seeing what it kind of means versus the literal facts, you know, it's like that left brain, right brain, it, it, it kind of reflects the ability to do that, to abstract meaning from it and recognize that the plot is fictional, that these events didn't actually happen, but that they represent something that is real about the world versus, you know, somebody watching say they live and thinking it's like they literally are, you know, aliens and controls yeah. with like, radio oh, waves or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I to to lend some I want to lend support to what Harrison said because I think that it it's consistent with Mark's Mark's concerns in that if you have that right balance, 
that what Harrison is saying is absolutely the case, right? So it's like, you know, you perceive things as like, yeah, my stomach wants this or my heart wants that. Um, as long as you recognize that they're a part of a greater whole, that all that all makes sense and it's all consistent. Yeah. It's only if you're like pathologically splitting everything up and, and thinking of it as different that it becomes a problem. But I, I wanted to really like, since we're kind of, you know, we're coming up on two hours. I want to tie it back. Like I've been wanting to say something about skin in the game and, and kind of maybe transition into talking a little bit about why society writ large seems to be so left hemisphere dominant and what segment of type of people that benefits, because I think that ties into Harrison's work too, um, chronology with, People that are left hemisphere dominant functionally don't have skin in the game in a very substantial way because they're going to be able to participate in this highly technocratic, professionalized, credentialized system uh, that's very bureaucratic where there aren't consistent reality tests. And they're going to be able to do so with gusto. And they're going to be able to, you know, chase those arbitrary metrics that the bureaucracy picks that you should be targeting. And they're not going to be so concerned about the fact that they're not actually doing anything productive, that functionally all they're doing is growing the size of the bureaucracy and siphoning more and more money away from the productive sector of the economy. They're going to be able to do it, and it's not going to be a problem. And in that process, when everybody gets all on board and, and left hemisphere, and you know what, what does that leave space for? It leaves sociopaths who also are, you know, they might not be left hemisphere dominant, but they can, they really benefit from a situation where nobody's really able to see the big picture. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, a fog of war situation where if everybody's so focused on these arbitrary things, it makes it easy for somebody that, that comes in that's not acting in good faith to manipulate those people and rise up and control perception. And I think that all those factors kind of work together in order to create a, just a very dangerous situation where everybody's very content to have this system where there's no reality checks. Everybody feels comfortable with the fact that nobody can be held accountable for anything going wrong because it's all distributed, which I think to some extent gets engineered by the sociopaths once they achieve enough influence. Um, I kind of wanted to pivot there because that skin in the game thing really stuck out to me. And it does stick out to me as something that like, we're never going to make it unless people have skin in the game. And a lot of times people think of that just in terms of straightforward incentives. And when you have that left hemisphere dominance, you can be like, Oh, skin in the game. Well, we just got to have metrics and give them rewards for, you know, like performance. And it's like, no, because it's just going to get gamed if you don't have that proper balance where you can understand if, you know, in, in, in technocracy terms, we're talking about measures of performance and measures of efficacy, like do the measures of performance, like what you're actually doing line up with the measures of efficacy? Like, is it making the difference that it's supposedly supposed to make? Yeah, I think, uh, Part of it, um, we talked about this before, right? Like the generals who like are um, 
on the front with with their soldiers right and you could uh extend that analogy i guess to um to civilian life as well you know when you you actually have to be in the midst of life you know where you you having an impact right so it's not an abstract uh, number like on a spreadsheet that says okay um we're doing this here at this corporation or in this uh, uh bureaucracy office and it it's gonna impact you know like that many thousands of people and you come up with these metrics and these performance indicators and kpis and you know blah 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 and uh but you actually live there you know like where the people are you know and you interact with them directly you talk to them uh, and that's sort of like this being in life you know um in in the middle of life and and that's why um things when things were organized like on a much smaller scale you know maybe by by a church or then later by by some local um admin very local administration you know uh things worked were kind of better you know and, and even with corporations when you had small i mean the whole free market thing you know it comes from like this model of small craftsmen and things like that where, where this stuff actually works so i guess my point would be um i'm not sure if it can actually uh there's anything we can do you know um in in a large bureaucracy kind of setting um except as you said come coming up with more like measures and come like opening another department the, de the department for uh making sure the other department uh reaches their goals department you know and <laughs> Luke, i i shit you not i'm dealing like like i i don't know how much i can say without i mean so like that's exactly what happened at work recently like they created yeah. this the department of departments no no it's it's called the uh well, I won't say what it's called, okay? But there's a department of several government scheduled civilians that it's like they got put at the division level, like across, like in, in the army. And it's like, oh, they're going to evaluate all these programs. Like, are they working or not? It's like a whole extra department that got added. So, like, that's, it's funny you say that. It's exactly... Exactly well, here's it's, a here's a question for anyone that's got key, like more like like key custodia custodes right and like you just like it's custodes like all the way down right like I mean you just keep like adding additional layers of like it's like yeah there's compliance officers well then you compliance officers for the compliance officers and you know it just grows. Yeah, I was going to say compliance, safety, like when I was thinking about intelligence, because I was reading your other article, John, as well. Like that was talking about again and also Eugipius. Um, came in later with a similar sort of uh, perspective on the, on the kind of the, the link between intelligence and, you know, putting, um, putting untested uh, medical products in your body. And so I was just sort of thinking, okay, so compliance, safety, and risk. And I was like, how do these things relate? Do they map cleanly onto hemispheric work of the brain? Or is that something that's born elsewhere because I have a feeling it might be something that's born in neither hemisphere, but something, some well, more central, something, something more something central to. Yeah, our, one of our uh, one of our leaders actually had a really good like little snippet. All right, and it's risk awareness, not risk aversion. And I think that's it in a nutshell. Like risk awareness is what you need. Risk aversion, especially in the military, is no bueno. 
right? So you got to have... Which is part of total situational awareness, essentially, right? You're just like... Yeah, but what what hemisphere is going to... Like, if you're left hemisphere dominant, that's going to get you into that risk aversion. It's like, oh my God, okay. So like, I've identified a risk. Now what do I got to do in order to mitigate that risk? It's like, well, maybe nothing. Maybe nothing can be done about it. Maybe exerting any resources to mitigate that risk isn't necessary. It's just something to be aware of. Like, hey, this course of action has this risk. This one has this risk. You know, just be aware of it. But don't be like, oh, we can't, oh, wait, we got to eliminate any possible The problem risk. is that the, the left hemisphere will see, like, the identified risk as a problem to be solved by, by its very nature. And yes. it also, uh, while it's focused on solving that problem, it will be quite oblivious to any problems that might be caused by the solution that it is implementing uh which then if it is if you don't have the sort of um wise intercession of the right hemisphere to say like uh in some cases like hey maybe do nothing um because all of the available yeah. options are worse and than also the, 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 the left then things things spiral right and it's like it's like it's like oh like you have this one symptom uh so you should take this medication that causes another symptom so now you take another medication for that you know and and you sort of next thing you know you're on 10 pills a day and also the the left hemisphere tends to over uh estimate risks i think because uh, it kind of thinks the problem from the solution right so so you can see um for example in in traffic policies and stuff you know um they will like assume that you know uh i don't know like speed re- limit uh, harsher speed limit will save like that many dead people and it's obviously just an assumption they back it up with some statistics but it's ultimately you know you, you just cannot... said that to brag about the autobahn didn't you? yeah and, and no no but yeah. no, I mean, we're suffering from that too here i mean we're suffering that for, i mean they're becoming dictatorial here too so i can't brag unfortunately but the thing is uh you know and it's it's basically like you can have stats and stuff, but ultimately it's you cannot know this. You know, you cannot know how many deaths, if any, like this will. You can't take you know, one say, metric and just extrapolate yeah. but, in, in know, isolation you, from everything but, else. Yeah, exactly. But the, and it's just BS science, basically the the whole traffic sign thing. You know, I, I looked into it. I, I think it's just voodoo. You know, it's but it's left hemisphere voodoo because uh, you know you you can uh, the left hemisphere always thinks in solutions. So you you cannot like. Uh, reduce death by i don't know you know just uh casting a spell but you can reduce the speed limit you know you can do that so it, it's it's well, i disagree about the spell casting but no no yeah, I, yeah, what yeah, i disagree about is, is, is actually that. like the idea that risk so it's sort of like here's where other things come into it right because like you can everybody can identify a risk like grant was saying it's sort of like risk awareness right i'm aware of a ton of risks um, most of them are very, very practical. It's like, it's sort of like, I'm not afraid that I'm going to get eaten by a tiger because I live in a, in an apartment building, for instance. And it's sort of like, okay, so, so there are irrational fears of, of risks that don't exist. And then there are rational fears of risks that do exist, but all of that seems seems separate from the idea of is the risk worth taking? So it's sort of like, so, and that I do not think is hemispheric work at all. I would not attribute that to a hemisphere. I would attribute that to the soul in the sense that ultimately, and, and this is where, this is why I think principles, things like principles um, map so directly to that in, ineffable quality of consciousness, the thing that, the thing that wears the suit. 
And so it's sort of like uh, uh, ultimately any risk could be worth it, including risking your life. And here's and here's where it gets real weird, including sacrificing your life. Now, this is where we get into like the real nitty gritty. Right. And when well, we talk so, about so, skin so, in so, the game, I, we're, we're really talking about skin in the game here. Just quickly, Mark, just, just give a concrete example yeah. of exactly what you're talking about, right? So, uh, to go back to traffic. Okay, so you're, you say you got a freeway and this car is zooming around back and forth. Under almost any circumstances, uh, running into the middle of that freeway would be foolhardy. You would have to be an idiot to do that. But, uh, you know, let's say that your toddler happens to have run there and, like, the only way that you can... Is it now worth the risk to save your toddler's life to run into the middle of the freeway? And almost anyone would say, "Fuck yeah!" One of the things you, we were uh, talking about, like Grant, someone Grant said earlier, and I forget now precisely how he said it, um, but it reminded me of one of the best things about economics is the whole concept of opportunity costs that a lot of fields surprisingly don't even bring up or, or deal with, like the idea of opportunity costs, and that's like something that it seems like it has to be a right hemisphere thing because it's a kind of an order of abstraction above like you're thinking not just about the thing that you're thinking about doing but the counterfactual if we don't do this what's the cost going to be if we do do this you know second order third order effects like what's the cost of that and then comparing those costs you know and just that opportunity cost seems like such a critical thing to keep in mind and trade-offs i think it's like thomas saw that famously was said like you know all of life is trade-offs everything there is no such thing as a net um uh, you know as, as a as a net uh positive or negative uh loss gain scenario like in reality you know in models there are and you yeah. can always model something that is like a that is a a, a zero-sum game but like in reality it's all trade-offs right so, much so that's even risks right. you know yeah because it's like because you yeah. have to let this like they want the perfect solution that's the hallmark of it. It's like, oh, you know, if we just do this and ignoring all the costs of it, it's like, don't you want to save lives? Don't you want to, you know, well, <laughs> this will save lives. So we just need to do this ad infinitum. The more we do it, the more lives we save. And that's got to be a good thing, right? And it's like, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's right down, down to the, it's, yeah. <laughs> there are definitely yeah, right down to the blood and bone. I don't, I don't want saved. There are definitely some lives I don't actually want saved that badly. Um, but uh, since, since we're wrapping up, uh, I'm just going to say that, um, you know, the, the model of left hemisphere map, right hemisphere terrain kind of uh, way of and go, going back and forth between those two um, is, in my mind, it's very useful, explains a lot, uh, but it's also a model. Um, and, you know, just to touch on something Marcus is saying there, I mean, like, it's not a model that actually does explain everything. And that is worth keeping in mind um about this model as well as any other right on cool it works in practice the key question is does it work in theory That's terrain not map yeah <laughs> yeah this will be probably a recurring theme that we come back to from time to time just as we discuss anything you know because it's just it's it's useful, just like how this is not the first article that John wrote on this exact topic. You know, it's the second article that he wrote on it or expanded on it. Uh, I think it's just something that's always kind of worth considering. Um, but that said, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Tonic Discussions. If you made it all the way to the end, what are you doing? If you haven't liked and subscribed and commented, 
you know it's time to leave a comment if you made it all the way to the end of just a bunch of dudes talking for two hours um you know engage you know we want to hear from you what'd you think um but or better uh, yet better yet track down one of our sub stacks and engage there absolutely yeah and like, get the podcast from the from your uh subscribe to the podcast from your podcast app that's yep. what i would do yeah, yeah in case absolutely. we can cancel yeah. it from youtube yeah yeah and then you don't have to have the video you know you can you know <laughs> listen while you're mowing your lawn anyway uh we will see you all next time